Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. Hello and welcome to How to Win 2024. It's Thursday, February 8th. I'm Jennifer Palmieri and I'm here with my co-host, Claire McCaskill. Good morning, Claire. So I hear you're in Vegas, you know, and I know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, so I'm not going to ask very many questions. Although I am anxious to know, have you had any Chiefs sightings? Have you seen any of the, my Kansas no. City Chiefs wandering no. the Strip? Well, that's a good sign. That means they're sticking Actually, to the knitting. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I did drive yeah. past where they were staying because I think they're like out in Henderson. It's yeah. like yeah, I think they put them all. They put both. Teams it's like where away we stayed. Obama did debate prep here in twelve, and like we stayed off the strip out there. It's nice, but it's quiet and yeah. yeah. So I did not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only sighting I had is Roger Goodell is staying at my hotel. Roger Goodell and all of the NFL owners are here. Oh, there you go. So have you won any money? No, no, I don't, I'm not a gambler. I'm not into it. I kind of like watch people play craps because it actually is sort of a community event and people are cheering each other on in a way you don't normally see. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so speaking of money and you not winning <laughs> any, we're going to check on the state of the economy today with Jason Furman. He is a professor of economics at Harvard and a very familiar face to those of us who worked closely with the Obama administration because he was Obama's top economic advisor for the entire terms of President Obama, all eight years. We want him to kind of lay out where the economy is now and why is it so hard for people to see all the positive signs that economists see and um, what he thinks Biden needs to do to emphasize the economic wins that the Biden administration has had. And we're also going to spot our vice president. There's been a lot of talk on the right that a vote for Biden is a vote for President Harris and, you know, suggesting that that's a bad thing. So we want to dispel the idea that that's something to be aware of, but should, in fact, be celebrated. And also to answer that question from people in their own lives, all the accomplishments and qualifications of Vice President Harris, which, as you know, Claire, women in office have to constantly reinforce. Correct. But first, we've got some winners and losers. And we've got, you know, it's always hard to pick we always have so many people that we think are losers. It is so one yeah, of our we, ch- challenges every week is, well, who is the <laughs> biggest loser? But first, what about winners? Who do you have as a winner this week, Jen? So this is a good one because it hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but this is Biden winning the cash dash. So money, critically important in campaigns. And the truth is Biden has a lot of it. So Trump's PAC has spent more than it's taken in the last months dealing with legal expenses. Biden has built a healthy stockpile, kind of working quietly behind the scenes. They've done well with that. So MAGA Inc. is the main super PAC that backs Trump, and it spent more than it raised in the last six months of 23. That primarily because it transferred $30 million to Save America, classic, which is the main vehicle that Trump is using to pay his legal fees. And on the official campaign side, it blew through more cash than it took in over the last three months of the year. Compare that to Biden. So he ended the year with $46 million in cash. That's far more than the $33 million that Trump's campaign held before the Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire primary. So see how much they spent there. And Future Forward, that's the super PAC that's backing Biden, has a little more in the bank than uh, Trump's super PAC, MAGA Inc. I know I hear a lot about it. They are ferociously raising money and intend to raise, as you know, Claire, quite a bit. 
Yeah, hundreds and millions of dollars. They're planning on the Biden campaign is going to spend, I would predict, upwards of $300 million on advertising before this is all said and done. And the burn rate is something we talk about in politics. And for everyone to understand, the burn rate is basically how you assess how a campaign is doing with the frankly tricky job of amassing a whole bunch of money and then making sure you spend it wisely in a fairly short period of time. And this is what got Ron DeSantis in trouble, his burn rate. His payroll was so big. He had such an affinity for private jets. He was spending a fortune, you know, over a year ago. And as a result, when he got finished in Iowa and he was no longer the flavor of the month, he had a real difficulty getting his stores replenished and he wasn't going to have enough money to continue to compete. So burn rate matters. Now, I have to admit, this is the first time I have ever seen someone spend $50 million trying to keep themselves out of jail. (laughs) But I mean, you know, who knew that this was going to be a new thing about burn rate? And who knew that you could get away with it and not have a major drop in the polls, that spending money to keep yourself out of jail, your donor's money, is now okay with this crowd. It is just bizarre. Okay, so losers. Well, this isn't hard. Let me tell you a fairy tale that frankly is unbelievable on its face. Imagine a time when the Democrats in the Senate want to help our allies and they want to bring forth a bill with significant funding for Ukraine, for Israel, and for Taiwan. And imagine the Republicans saying, oh no, not so fast, you guys. We don't want to help our allies until you do something about the border. And they propose things that are so conservative that they are confident the Democrats will not take the bait. And fast forward, lo and behold, after months of negotiations, what do the Democrats produce? Exactly what the Republicans had asked for. Exactly what they'd asked for. Reforming asylum, closing the border when the surges come, ending catch and release, all the things that they didn't think the Democrats would ever do, the Democrats did. And so what did they do then? Because they got the little signal, the wink, wink, nod, nod from the orange guy at the golf course. They said no. They said no. So the biggest losers including Mitch McConnell, who ended up voting against it. You know, there were only four Republicans who voted for it, one of whom's retiring, Mitt Romney, and then Lisa Murkowski and Mm -hmm. Susan Collins and Jim Langford. Poor Jim Langford, who has been just roasted over this unfairly. Uh, And then we had some Democrats vote against it because it was too conservative. (laughs) Right. So (laughs) because um, per your earlier comments, it's super conservative. Yeah. Yeah. So the Senate Republicans are trying to emulate They're loser friends down the hall, and they are now behaving as badly as the House Republicans have been behaving for months. But don't let the House Republicans off the hook, Claire, because the the failed Mayorkas impeachment vote. I mean, the incompetent, you know, there's like bad judgment, bad use of time. This is wholly unjustified, bizarre logic in trying to impeach um, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Ali Mayorkas. And then they mess it up on the House floor and don't actually get enough votes to pass their own ridiculous made-up impeachment thing. Yeah. By the way, can they count? Can they count? Like, what is Nancy Pelosi? It's just like, jokers. You all are a bunch of jokers. When the Speaker of the House doesn't understand that his major political move he's making, impeaching Mayorkas, when he can't count, and when he knows he has three no votes and he knows how many people have to be there to vote, There is no excuse just because Al Green was in the hospital. We've had plenty of times, I can assure you. I remember on Obamacare, Teddy Kennedy coming back in in a very bad health to vote. We've had many times we've had people vote from the cloakroom with their thumbs sticking out because they were not well. 
So it's not unusual to have someone come and vote who has been in the hospital. So I, I yeah, because that was the Republicans' excuse. They're like, well, we didn't know right. that the Democratic Congressman Al Green was going to show up because he had been um, in the hospital. But this is your job. Your job is to anticipate all outcomes. This would never happen with Nancy Pelosi. And then he puts Israel on the floor, which I'm like trying to figure that out. He puts funding for Israel by itself on the floor. Mm -hmm. So now the Republicans own failing to fund Israel. Nobody is going to go, well, well, the Democrats voted against it. Well, you know, he knew that Democrats were going to vote against it. Why would you put funding for Israel on the floor if you're in the majority and you can't pass it? It's just these guys are really bad at their jobs. Uh, Our friend Chuck Todd summed this up nicely because, you know, people may think, like, oh, this is just normal house Republican incompetence. So there's I grew up in a military family, great military terms. One is snafu. People sometimes misunderstand what that means. What it actually stands for, it's an acronym. Situation normal, all effed up, right? So the House, like, messing up the Israel bill, that's kind of a snafu. Yeah. And then there's FUBAR, which is effed up beyond all recognition. This is something different than a snafu. And the House right now is FUBAR. So do you have an honorable mention for losers? Because we couldn't leave Nikki off, could we? So this, okay, yeah. So I'm so I'm in Vegas and actually it's been super interesting. I came here to observe the primaries. By the way, I spent time in Clark County Vote Center. So these are the people that are responsible for registering to vote and counting the vote. An incredibly professional operation. They were staffed as if it was the general election day in 2024 just to be prepared and have a good dry run. And, you know, as it, as it turns out, turnout was relatively low. The people who did not use the primary in Nevada as a good dry run are both Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. Nikki, poor Nikki Haley. None of these candidates gets 40,000 votes. She only gets 20,000 votes. But then Trump, you know, Biden won the state in 20 and Catherine Cortez Masto, the senator, won in 22, as you know, Claire, partly because of the great ground game Democrats have, the Reed machine, the Harry Reed machine still in effect here. And Trump could have used this opportunity to build a good organization because he needs one in Nevada, you know, use the Nevada caucuses, which are happening today, which is super confusing, Republican primary. No delegates accrue to that. The Republican caucuses today, delegates do accrue to that. Trump is in the caucus. Haley is not. And he didn't really do it. And they, they think that, you know, John Ralston, Mr. Nevada, he thinks maybe less people will caucus for Trump than voted for Haley. So what the bottom line is, is Nevada, the curtain closes on Nevada picking a presidential candidate. We can say with emphasis and gusto to close out this segment, none of these candidates win. Just none of these candidates (laughs) win. Uh, We got to take a quick break. But when we come back, former Obama economic advisor and all around economy expert, Jason Furman, he's an economist who actually talks like a normal person, which is really good. He joins me and Shen to look at what the Biden administration has done, what they've accomplished and why voters and why many economists didn't see it. We had a lot of people on Wall Street that were wrong about what happened. Let's let's see what he's got to say. We'll be back in just a moment. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. 
Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. Welcome back. Thinking back to 2021, when President Biden took office, the U.S. economy was really in the dregs. It was a mess. Uh, We were slowly coming out of the pandemic. Supply chain woes were making everything very expensive. Unemployment was still incredibly high, and people's household incomes were hurting. And frankly, how quickly we forget. Yeah. Uh, I mean, cut to 2024, the economy is booming. Inflation is easing. Unemployment is at a record low. We had a blowout jobs report. More than twice the consensus expectation. Now, I know many of my conservative friends are trying to drill holes in this report. But you know what, folks? It is what it is. It's a very strong report. But how the economy is doing and how people are feeling about it and who they credit for it are sometimes at odds. There was a NBC poll that came out this weekend that was very concerning for those of us who want Joe Biden to win because it showed that Trump had a 20 point advantage on who was better to lead on the economy, even though Trump is way off when it comes to why the market is thriving. The Biden team can say, well, if things are so bad, how come the stock market's on a roll? Because they think I'm going to be elected. That you think the stock market's rallying because people think you're going to be elected. I do, yeah. Okay, to talk to us about why Trump is so off base with this analysis and where we are headed is Dr. Jason Furman. He is professor of economic policy at Harvard University and served eight years as top economic advisor to President Barack Obama. And frankly, one of the reasons he's one of my favorite economists of all time, well, there's many reasons. One was (laughs) time, time on an airplane in 2008 when we were very excited about none other than Senator Barack Obama, but also because he's an economist who can talk like a normal person. Welcome, Jason. We're really happy to have you. This is great. Just wish we could be doing it on an airplane. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Going someplace fun. Uh, Jason and I worked together for President Clinton and President Obama, and both times I was in the press office and be like, Jason, oh my God, you have to explain this to us because you are the one who can do it in English. So you're an economist, but you also understand politics and you worry about how these things interact. And so I think a lot of people saw that poll from NBC and it's like, oh my God, the economy is the most important issue. Trump has a 20-point advantage over Biden. That must mean that Biden is going to lose. The Biden campaign believes that they're going to win, and they do not expect that on the day that Biden does win, that he will have an advantage over Trump on who Americans think is better to handle the economy. But what they want to do is cut into his lead, have people think the economy is strong enough that they're not looking for a change. And Biden doesn't have to fully overcome that, but he needs to overcome that in some way. I just want to set the stage for that. And how do you think he should best or can best do that, Jason? So it's great to be with both of you. And mm. the truth we love is, it. thank you. <laughs> the truth is, the economy is frankly in better shape than I thought it would be. You know, there's this famous unicorn in economics called a soft landing, which is this idea that you can get inflation down without causing a recession. It's basically never happened before. Up until now. And it actually did. Inflation came down and the unemployment rate has been basically tied for a 50-year low for two years now. And by the way, just to put this in some perspective, when Barack Obama ran for re-election in 2012, the unemployment rate was 8%. Right now, the unemployment (gasps) rate is less than half of that. 
So, I don't remember that. Yeah, no, somehow he won with an 8% unemployment rate. Now, 8 was better than 10, which is what it had been, um, you know, in his first year in office. So it was oh coming God. down, but it was really high. It was really high. Now, we know that people don't, not just in political polls, like the one you were citing, but yep. in more economic polls, like consumer sentiment, aren't incredibly positive about the economy. But there's some good news there, which is in the last month or two, their sentiment in the economic polls, and I haven't seen this in the political polls, I don't read those as closely, has been picking up. And so part of me thinks that um, there may be long and variable lags between what happens in the economy and in economic sentiment, and that it right. takes people a bit of time, you know. And, and and that's not crazy of people, right? You don't want to just see a jobs number and then totally change your mind about the economy. You want to see six months of progress. Inflation came down you know, really starting about six or seven months ago, that people want to wait a few more months to let it sink in. I don't I don't think that's crazy on anyone's part. And so that's my hope is that some of what's going on here is just these lags between changes in the economy and when people really start to believe it. So traditionally in campaigns that I have run and been a part of, we have always worried about the two Fs, food and fuel because it always feels like those two things are the things that people gauge the economy by. How much they're paying for a tank of gas and how much they're paying at the grocery store. Those two I'm worried about. Can you talk a little bit about the Red Sea and whether or not you think we're going to have a fuel disruption price increase? And secondly, what's going on with the food prices? Why did I pay, you know, like $9 for a jar of mayonnaise in New York a few weeks ago? I mean, what in the, that make anybody feel like the economy sucks. <laughs> right. So the two Fs right now are very different. Food prices really are high. They went up. They haven't come down. You wouldn't expect them to come down, but they went up about 6% more than the rest of inflation. So there really still is an issue with food and it's very visible for consumers. The low inflation we've had over the last six months, a lot of that has been on the durable goods side, you know, cars, things like that, but it's not in everything and it hasn't showed up in food. Fuel you know, is really quite low. It's, three, you know, about $3 a gallon, a little bit over that nationwide. It's quite low right now. I share your nervousness. Anything can happen with fuel prices around the world. Um, if you look at what financial markets are betting, you look at futures prices, they are not betting that fuel prices are going to go up right now. Hmm. So, you know, as scary as the headlines look in the newspaper, the people who have money at stake are not betting that that's going to show up in higher oil prices. And I'm not a geopolitical expert, but that seems like a reasonable judgment to me. There's one other gasoline issue, though, just that every year I was in the White House, you dealt with, which is that gasoline always gets more expensive from February through about July 4th as people just start getting in their cars and traveling more. It's a seasonal thing. It happens every year. And so, you know, that'll drive everyone a little nutty. So I'm curious about what tools the president has. You were there. People, I think put too much blame on the president for the economy and then probably give him too much credit on the economy. What actual levers does the president have, let's say with fuel or with any other of these indicators? And talk for a minute, if you would, about whether or not you really think the Inflation Reduction Act, whether all those stimulus spending as it relates to the infrastructure, whether we're seeing that in the economy yet, or is that still to come 
the jet fuel, speaking of fuel, that massive amounts of public projects around the country could provide. Talk about those things a little bit, Jason. Yeah. So the president doesn't have a lot of tools right now, and that's because there's a Republican House of Representatives and they can't get anything done let alone something that's needed for the economy. He's really focused on implementing the just extraordinary amount of legislation he's gotten done in terms of climate change, chips, infrastructure, and the like. I think that is helping the economy right now. I do think the bigger gains from those legislation will be five or 10 years in the future. That's when the transformations will happen. It's starting to help now. It's on the plus side of the ledger. But you do have to sell to people this vision of the future, not just taking credit for what's happened right now. That was gently said, but it's a very important point. President needs to articulate a vision for what he's going to do in the next term, not just taking credit for what happened this time. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. I agree with you and me. You know, on on oil, you know, the, the president did do a release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve about two years ago when oil prices got high. I think that really did help at the time break the trend and, and send prices down. So if Saudi Arabia, somebody does something nutty, there's always that tool. And that, fortunately, you don't need Congress to do. OK, so, Jason, can I ask you to be a messenger or at least say how would I'm out you... of that business, Jen, but I'll, I'll try for a moment for yeah, your Yeah, you're sake. pretty good at it, though. I mean, if you were to say in the span that you can do in one answer, make the argument for what the president has done in the first term to help the economy, you know, what would you tell voters to try to make this crystallize in their minds for like why things are better and why he laid a, like, a new foundation for the future? They're better at that than me. Uh, you're better at that than no, me. You're but they no, you're not. No, I'm not, because I would ask you what to do, and then you would tell me. <laughs> write it up. Um, That's it. You know, it's just we were in a really difficult place three years ago, economically and broader societally. And now we've brought back stability to the economy, an unemployment rate that's the lowest in 50 years. We know that prices are still high for many of you, but it's getting better. And we're going to need to do more to build on the progress we made because things are moving in the right direction, even if they're not all the way there for everyone yet. So what's what is embedded in what you said is you're not overcrowing that everything is great. You're allowing for the fact that people may still feel uneasy about their personal situation, but we've kind of turned this corner. Is that right? Yeah. And that's the tricky debate we had oh under Obama, God, which all, is how much was... do you take credit versus acknowledge that the pain people have because you don't want to seem too out of touch. And it's a it tricky was, balancing act. It was comical. Everyone, we would say, can we say we've turned the corner? And it's like, no, you can't say we've turned the corner. Do we see the corner? <laughs> we can almost see the corner. I mean, these are the debates we would have because you have to be careful about having people hear you. If And if you're too optimistic and take too much credit, they tune you out because it's unaligned with where they are. But at the same time, the president should be optimistic and be leading people to a point where they do feel better, particularly when the circumstances call for that, like now. Can he say credibly, we, by the way, not just him, like we, everybody working together, laid an important new foundation going forward because of the CHIPS bill that helps build semiconductor plants and infrastructure? Is that a credible thing to say economically? I, I think it's true. So, yes, okay. I think it's also credible. Okay, great. So we have some audio of none other than Steve Forbes uh, speaking a little bit about the U.S. recovery as it relates to the rest of the world. Falling inflation and rising growth gives the U.S. the world's best recovery. Steve Forbes with me this morning. 
I think the Democrats are going to run with that headline. I mean, they're just <laughs> going to plaster this all over the place. But are they right? Is America, does America now have the best recovery? Well, yes. So, yes, we do have the strongest economic recovery in the world. I believe we can say that. Certainly, you can say that in a campaign. But I think we also need to spend just a minute, Jason, before we let you go, to do a 101 on tariffs. Most Americans have not taken in-depth economic courses, don't really understand how tariffs work. And Trump took advantage of that. He basically told everyone that China was paying this money. And of course, that's not how tariffs work. Talk about tariffs and Trump's affinity for them and the political danger of tariffs and what was the real economic impact of the tariffs that he put in place in terms of goods that Americans want to buy for cheaper prices. Yeah, the Trump tariffs are like a tax on Americans. They're basically just like a sales tax and they make the prices of the products that consumers buy every day go up. Moreover, there was recently an economic analysis from Bloomberg that found when you took the retaliation into account, it would hurt economic growth and jobs in the United States and actually help China. Why would it help China? Because more countries would start doing business with China rather than doing business with the United States because of all of our tariffs. So it's like a combination of a consumer tax increase and a hit to economic growth. And Trump has promised much, much more of it if he's reelected. Do we still have tariffs in place that are damaging? Should this administration be looking at that as one other tool they might have to free up some more trade into the country? Yeah. From my perspective, the one lever that I wish the president had pulled that he has in his own power and he hasn't is to get rid of some of those tariffs that are already there. And by the way, he's right to focus on national security ones. You know, what we don't mind is if China wants to sell us washing machines, that's fine. We don't want our consumers to have to pay more for washing machines. If China wants to buy guidance systems for missiles or advanced AI systems, no, we don't want them to buy those. And so this administration, I think in the new stuff they've done, is very focused on national security, not focused on hurting American consumers. Well, first of all, we have learned a lot today. And I think yeah. I will now put in my hard drive. Tariffs are just like a sales tax to Americans because everybody gets the sales tax part. And it was just amazing to me that, you know, he just says stupid stuff that's not right over and over again until people take it as fact. And it's so frustrating, especially when it comes to economic information. And I, I'm just like stealing myself for all the crap he's going to say between now and November. There's going to be like fingernails on a chalkboard. I imagine it's even harder for an economist to listen to some <laughs> of that nonsense and not want to go strangle somebody. I use some of them as questions in class. They're very educational. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. There Get you people go. thinking about the nonsense that is actually coming out of his mouth. Listen, we really appreciate your time today. It was great to have you. And it was fun for me to take a trip down memory lane and remember meeting you and visiting with you on those campaign trips on that airplane back when we all were just hoping that someday he would walk into the Oval Office. And I think thank you for your government service and thank you for continuing to educate the brightest minds in America. Well, thanks to both of you. It was great to see you, Jason. And fun fact about Jason Furman, friends, he is an expert juggler. There you go. Yeah, that's right. No, <laughs> I mean, like public performance worthy level juggler. Yeah, not just economic policy. So you can come to this podcast and learn how to win in 2024 and learn important facts like Jason Furman, one of the most economic bright lights in our country, can also juggle. I love that, Jason. That's right. 
Absolutely. Okay, I'm coming back anytime with this treatment. This is great. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Jen and I want to spotlight the GOP's fear-based argument that a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris. Uh, Weird that this is their strategy. Stay with us. Hey, Fidelity. How can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Oh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. Welcome back. As the election season kicks into full gear, one issue remains a central concern for voters across the political spectrum that the candidates are old. And that means voters are maybe going to pay much closer attention to the vice presidency than they might normally. That remains to be seen, but certainly it is a valid hypothesis that people might be paying more attention. So what do we have there, Jen? So Republicans, and particularly Nikki Haley, does this the most. They're using this as the opportunity to push a narrative that a vote for Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris. And there's something the GOP fears more than someone who's not an old white man occupying the highest office in the land. So today we're shining a spotlight on how they're trying to weaponize that effort. Also want people who are looking to defend the vice president, understand, also just kind of understand what's happening here. Because I think you, as a longtime Democratic elected official, and then me from my Hillary experience, have a little insight into why her approval rating is low, why people are coming after her, and what to do to help her fight back. Yeah, so she was at the breakfast club with Charlemagne last week. Uh, Haley, yeah. Haley, and this 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 is her strategy where she is really trying to make Kamala Harris the person that people should be frightened of. There will be a first female president. It's either going to be Kamala Harris or it's going to be me. And it should send a chill up everyone's spine thinking about the fact that it would be Kamala Harris. Listen, and then the follow-up on this, Jen, which was really I know, outrageous. It's really, it's, I'm surprised it hasn't gotten more attention. I know. Because it's really stunning. The Breakfast Club asked her why would she be such a bad POTUS? And she said that because Barack Obama caused so many problems. So in other words, Kamala Harris equals Barack Obama. And I'm trying to figure out why that is. Yeah, I mean, maybe because they're both black. I mean, she actually said she blamed Obama for starting racial tensions, said that started during the Obama administration. And that is why Kamala Harris was going to be a bad president. You're just like. Yeah, and there's ne- there never has been a president who talked more about uniting the country. There has never been a president who tried to do everything he could. I mean, remember the beginning when he was trying to put Republicans on his cabinet and he did choose some Republicans for his cabinet. Remember all the efforts he made to continue to unify. This was not a Donald Trump presidency where yeah. he was playing to his base. So for her to say that really is revealing about something deep, dark, and ugly. And I'm disappointed that it didn't get more attention. She put up a billboard in South Carolina that basically said, you know, vote for me because the hard truth is going to be Trump can't beat Biden and Biden won't finish his presidency. So it's either going to be me or Kamala Harris. Like, 
that alone is persuasive to elect her. You know, what you may not know, and you probably know this, it's just like there, there's this great group, the Barbara Lee Family Foundation's woman, Amanda Hunter, who works there as a researcher and does phenomenal research about women politicians. And they have research that shows when a woman attacks another woman's qualifications, what it does in voters' mind is raise questions about the qualifications of the woman who's attacking the other female candidate. Like, it's messed up what she's doing in general, but also what the research shows is that Haley is probably doing damage to herself because it makes people question, like, well, I'm not sure I want that woman to be president either. Cause. Yeah, let's take a walk through Kamala Harris's qualifications, because I think people have not taken the time to realize it's not an accident she's the vice president. She is there because of an incredible record of accomplishment. Keep in mind, getting elected district attorney in San Francisco back in 2004, when she got elected, it's a very difficult job to get. People want that job, and really good qualified people want that job, and she was elected in 2004. And then in California, maybe the most competitive state for a Democrat, for statewide office, she ran for attorney general of California and won. She was the executive of that office. She ran the largest state-based justice department in the country. Hundreds and hundreds of lawyers. She had hundreds of, frankly, she had thousands of employees in San Francisco and thousands of employees as the attorney general of California. And then she wins a United States Senate seat once again. Very difficult to do, replacing Barbara Boxer in the Senate, and then did great work as a senator, was respected by her peers, was knowledgeable. She did a great job in hearings. I served on a committee with her. I watched her work. It was very impressive. And that's why she was picked to be vice president. So everybody who says that this is some lightweight, they've not, they're not paying attention to who she is and what she's done. What about as vice president? I mean, the record as vice president pretty good too, huh? And the Marcus Vice Press is pretty good. And like one for people to know that for women, even even when women are in office, they still have to reassert their credentials constantly in order for people to feel comfortable that they that they have the qualifications to do the job that they're doing. So it's like Kamala Harris needs to say, like, well, you know, from my time as attorney general in California, I dealt with a lot of crime. And therefore, I can tell you as vice president X, it's like. This is just the sort of different, I mean, if you people are wondering, I don't understand why people are attacking her so much. There's this notion of the double bind. And our friend Aaron Haynes is writing a book about this called Twice as Hard. So Harris has got racism and sexism. And, you know, I think this reveals itself in the coverage of her. Reporters that are covering Kamala Harris, you know, I worked for Hillary Clinton. I've written two books about what happens to women leaders and see elements of bias, both racial and gender, in her in her coverage. That doesn't mean that reporters are racist and sexist. That's not what's happening. But, you know, we all have unconscious bias, both race and gender. And it reveals itself with women politicians in certain ways. One, they question women's accomplishments. What has she done? They need to constantly hear, this is what the sort of social research shows, need to constantly hear what a woman has accomplished because they, if they aren't hearing what she's accomplished, they're going to question if she's actually getting anything done. We need to constantly have a woman be credentialed and remind us of, of, of what her qualifications are. There's a lot of stories of women candidates and politicians about their staff, how they run their offices. These are stories that generally, generally, okay, don't happen to men. So just to give you like a little insight into why some of the coverage about her is so negative. I think that this is sort of the doubts that people have that's at the root in a lot of our brains. 
You know, just in the last month for the beginning of January, she has gone 13 trips, nine states, 16 interviews. Okay. That's just from the beginning of the year. She and the president both have had a really aggressive travel schedule to early states and battleground states. I went on two trips with her recently. Well, relatively recently. July, I did an abortion rights trip with her to Des Moines. And then I went with her to London for this AI conference. When she is, hits the tarmac in Des Moines, there are hundreds of cheering people. Okay. I don't think hundreds of cheering people were turning out to root on Mike Pence when Air Force Two landed anywhere, right? We walk into this auditorium at Drake University, standing ovation. People are so excited to see her. Like, I love Al Gore. That didn't happen to Al Gore. So there is both enthusiasm for her that isn't acknowledged and then questions about her, despite a lot of tough assignments, worked on the root causes of immigration, doing a lot of diplomatic trips to Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, like that's part of her job. That whole basket of work is, is a difficult thing, but doing a lot of work on the diplomatic side on immigration. And, you know, she has taken on the abortion fight, reproductive rights, voting rights. And I think probably given the voters that Biden has to win back to win, young people, Hispanic voters, Black voters, Kamala Harris is uniquely positioned to help him get those voters back. I would argue electorally, she's more helpful to him than a running mate I can remember in recent history. Yeah. And I think people forget that most vice presidents are always dismissed. Most vice presidents, frankly, do more work behind the scenes than in in front of the cameras. She has been given some of the most difficult assignments. I mean, frankly, if I just landed in the vice president's job and I was told your job is going to be immigration in Central America, I'd say, what? (laughs) Who decided I got that? Well, how yeah. come I get that job? But what did she do? She's gone down there. She's connected over 400,000 people to skills-based training. She's connected 4 million people in Central America to the internet. She has put together billions of dollars of private investment in these countries. She is addressing one of the major problems, which is these folks need to have something in their home countries to address not just the violence they face, but their economic problems they have. Uh, She's working on those root causes and has not gotten enough credit for that. And I agree. You know, here's the thing. In wrapping up the spotlight on Kamala Harris, I would just ask everyone the next time someone says to you, but you know, that Kamala Harris, look at them and say, what is it specifically that she's done that you find so objectionable? What is it specifically about this woman that offends you? When I do that, Jen, people never have an answer. They it never blah, have an blah, answer. Blah, blah. They have nothing they can say. There's like, oh, well, she's going to, I heard something saying, well, she's going to bring about real change. I mean, Biden's kind of mainstream, but she's not. It's like, uh, yeah, no, she's kind of mainstream. There, no, she's you know, definitely she's, mainstream. She's mainstream. And just a couple other things I would say, because, you know, a lot of things I hear is like, well, maybe it's not fair, but Biden should get rid of her because that will help him in the election. It will not, friends. Okay, let me tell you something. First of all, If he removed Kamala Harris, which he will never do, okay, she is a good partner to him. They are good partners. He loves her. It is never going to happen. Also, he would look like a loser. If you get rid of your vice president, you look panicked and you look like you're losing. So that is not happening. What can help? I think you see the administration, like in the campaign commercials, you see 
Biden and Harris together. Like people understand what their partnership is about. She's fully in their ads. That's important. Also, Emily's list is doing. So that's the group that helps elect women to elected office. They have an independent expenditure where they are spending tens of millions of dollars putting out positive digital content about her. Not necessarily beating back the you know negative stuff because that's kind of a rabbit hole, but just having people see more of her. Because the other problem for the vice president is that you just don't actually get a lot of coverage. So it's really hard to communicate. So there's another effort to help boost her with more content about what she's doing. All right. So hopefully we've covered in glory our great vice president <laughs> and hopefully yeah. the campaign uses her effectively going forward. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you have a question for us, you can send it to howtowinquestions at NBCUNI.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 646-974-4194 and we might answer it on the pod. And now you can subscribe to MSNBC's How to Win newsletter for weekly insights from the network's cadre of analysts like yours truly. Please subscribe because I actually spend a lot of time writing a small amount of words to get it right. (laughs) Hope it's useful. With the drama of this election season heating up, now is the perfect time to get expert analysis on key races sent straight into your inbox. Visit the link in our show notes to sign up. This show is produced by Vicki Vergolina and Jessica Schrecker. Katherine Anderson and Bob Mallory are our audio engineers. Our head of audio production is Bryson Barnes. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com.